So glad you could join us. Um, and I hope that you had as good a time in praise and worship as we did. Um, it's so uh, important to not just uh, receive from the word, but also to give. And when we praise and worship, we're giving of our praise, our adoration, our focus and our attention to God, acknowledging him and all he's done. So i um, glad we could do that together. And now let's get into uh, the message for today. Um, this is something that God put on my heart recently, and uh, I am excited to share with you. Um, hoping that it comes out the way that uh, I feel like God put it in my heart. Um, we're going to start in John chapter 11, verse 1. And this is the story of Lazarus. Um, many of you know the story, but I want you to read along and listen with me um, and imagine that you don't know the end of the story at the beginning. So, John, or John chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. Mary, uh, whose brother, Lazarus, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. Okay. So, again, most of us know the story. When we hear the name Lazarus, we're, we're reminded of that story. But if you were there and you uh, were the disciples or you were the messenger coming from uh, Mary and Martha, headed back to Mary and Martha, and the message you got was, this will not end in death, what would you have thought? I am pretty, I know, I would have assumed that Lazarus was going to recover. I would have assumed that he wasn't going to die at all. But we know that he does die and he gets raised from the dead. But let's just, just imagine what it was like to be there and what was the expectation that Jesus' promise created in you. First, we know Jesus' promise did come to pass. But for many people, they expected one thing and expected that his promise would be fulfilled in a certain way. So, Jesus continues, No, it is for God's glory so that the Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? So here's the disciples doing what we as humans do. We're looking to the future and wondering what will happen. So we look to the past to get an idea. And they said, hey, last time you were there, you, the, the people tried to stone you. Why would you go back? Jesus answers, are there not 12 hours of the day? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went to them and said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you will believe. Let us go to him. Jesus pulls the veil. He, he was crystal clear. He says, okay, let's, let's be clear about this. I've already told you it won't end in death. And now I've told you that he is dead and that I'm on my way there to wake him up. Thomas, verse 16. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that me wait that we may die with him. It's interesting to me that Thomas loved Jesus. He was a disciple and he didn't lack love. He didn't lack commitment. In fact, you could even argue that his commitment was incredibly strong because he was expecting to go back to Judea, be stoned again, be chased, but this time he was expecting not to escape. He expected to die. Thomas is what we would call a pessimist. We have this story about Thomas. We also have the story of Thomas in another portion of scripture, in verse uh, 24 to 29 of John 20, when Jesus appears to the disciples and they go to Thomas who wasn't there with him and says, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas responds, unless I see his scars and put my finger in his hands and my hand in his side, I won't believe. And then it says a week later, this is verse 26, his disciples were in the house and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hands and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, Lord, my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is Thomas. So at least he's consistent. Thomas is what we would describe as a pessimist. When he sees a situation, he expects the worst until you can prove him wrong. And he says, when, when Jesus says, let's go back to Judea, Thomas, he's like, okay, wherever you say I'll go, but man, I'm expecting to die. And when Jesus raised from the dead, he was like, you know what? I just can't, I can't believe it until I see it. I've always had a, a term, emotional delivery. Sometimes you, you hope something might happen, but you don't fully get excited about it. You don't trust that it is going to happen. And when you do, that's when you get that emotional delivery, when you realize that it's going to happen. And Thomas, no. He delays the emotional delivery of good news. He's just like, no, not, I'm not buying it. And I think it's encouraging to realize that the disciples were so human. They were just normal guys, people who were given to uh, discouragement, to frustration, uh, to pessimism. Let's keep going with the story. We have... Thomas, he has the pessimistic view. Now, we continue. Verse 17 says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany, 
was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So interesting what she says, and we're going to compare it to her sister in a little bit, but Martha says, I know that if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. I trust that you could have done something. Many of us as Christians have said those same things to God many times. We've looked at a situation and said, God, you could have avoided this. I know you could have. I trust you could have. I believe that it's within your power to have avoided this. She knew God. She believed in him. And she trusted that he could have done something. And then, here's the important thing she says. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha showed that she recognized that the situation that they were in was not a permanent or necessarily a final position. She said, I know you can. And I also recognize that the situation I'm in isn't final. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And it's like she, she didn't dare yet to hope for everything. And so she says, Verse 24, and she answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into this world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that her sister had said. Except her sister had continued. She said, I know you could have, and I believe you still can change the situation. Mary, on the other hand, saw the situation as final. She believed God could have, but did not trust he still could make a difference. And here's what's interesting. Jesus did not uh, belittle her for her lack of faith. Quite to the contrary. Let's look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, 
very famous verse. Jesus cried. Here's the thing. Was Jesus crying at the loss of Lazarus? Was he crying over Lazarus' death? No. Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to be resurrected. He had already told Martha. He had already told his disciples. His disciples, he had told them very clearly. He's asleep. I'm going to wake him up. Oh, if he's asleep, won't he wake up? It'll be fine. No, I mean he's dead, and I'm going to wake him up. So they had heard, and he had declared it. Jesus knew that in a few minutes he was going to see Lazarus again. He was not crying because he missed Lazarus. He was crying because he recognized the genuine hurt that Mary felt and those with her. He recognized and had empathy for her. It is so important that we recognize that Jesus sees and understands our feelings completely. The Bible says that we don't have a, a mediator, speaking of Jesus, who doesn't understand because he experienced life as we have. He knew what it was like. He saw her pain and he sympathized, he empathized with her. He didn't get upset at her for lacking faith. So, John 11, chapter 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Again, all of these people, they believed he had the power to change the situation they used to be in. But they kept looking at the situation they were in as if there's nothing that can be done. They said, uh, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He's reminded her, haven't I already told you to expect something from God that God would be glorified? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I find it interesting, this is past tense. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. <laughs> I've always loved what one preacher pointed out. He said, he said, Lazarus, come out, because if he had just said come out, all of the dead in the cemetery would have come. The dead man, verse 44, came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. God intervened. Life came back to Lazarus. The situation didn't end as they expected. How do we react? when we see a difficult situation. And in this story, we have three people. We have Thomas, the diehard pessimist. Thomas, the one who does not believe anything could be 
positive. He just, he does not accept that, that maybe, he's just pessimist. As, as they say, the glass half full. Then we have Martha. Martha who believes, ah, oh, you know what? God, I know you could have. I know you could have, but I don't know that you can. She had faith, she loved God, and God was moved with compassion for her. And then, you're sorry, um, Mary, excuse me, it was Mary who had that, and then Martha who believed that, you know what, you could have, but also you still can. She said, but even now, if you believe, you can make a difference. I want to jump to uh, a very uh, key, I think a very important verse, and that is in Matthew chapter 8. We have the story of the centurion. Jesus praises the centurion's faith like no one else. So there is something about the way that this centurion behaved that impressed Jesus. So let's look and see what we can glean. Chapter 8, verse 5 through 13, it says, Then when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for the Lord, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now, spoil alert, in a little bit, Jesus is going to tell, tell us that this man had great faith. But notice that faith didn't mean he denied the circumstances. The centurion didn't deny that his servant was sick. He didn't ignore the negative situation. In fact, the centurion defined it very clearly. He said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering greatly. I have heard people who misunderstand faith talk about it and, and, and criticize other people. Oh, I, I remember someone saying, oh, that's that wealthy, healthy, wealthy, and wise stuff. And I remember thinking, well, you don't think that God wants us poor, sick, and stupid. So I know you're not a, against that, but they, they have this concept that, that faith is just denying reality. That is not what faith is. The centurion came with a very firm grasp of reality. He said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering greatly. Verse 7, Jesus says, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve that you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, whose soldiers under me, I tell them, this one, go and he goes. I tell that one, come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, will take their places at the feast of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness. He's talking about how these people from outside of Israel would, become, would be saved, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Now, I want to talk about faith-inspired optimism. 
Uh, I have here a glass that is approximately half full. Maybe now I'm about half. Many of us have always considered optimism and pessimism to be half full or half empty. So the pessimist looks and says, oh, it's half empty. The optimist says, ooh, it's half full. And when I talk about supernatural optimism, I'm not talking about that. It's not, the, the centurion didn't come and say, you know, my servant is sick and his, his head hurts and his stomach hurts. But guess what? His hands are feeling fine. See, many times we have this idea that optimism is just finding the good in whatever the situation is. And to a point, I see that. I want to quote something from a, the book of leadership by uh, the Leadership Secrets, excuse me, of Billy Graham. Um, it says here, it says, Optimism is not living in a fantasy world where nothing tragic ever happens. Vital optimism is a confidence that tragedy is not the last word, that the best is yet to be. Optimism is being able to acknowledge the brutal realities and to point to an even greater reality, that our experiences are not in vain, our response is not futile, and our efforts are going to be worthwhile. So here's the thing. Back to the cup. See, the centurion had faith. He was optimistic. His optimism wasn't just focused at that situation. I would say supernatural optimism isn't looking at the glass and saying it's half full. Supernatural optimism is looking at the glass no matter how full it is and recognizing we know where the water comes from. And if need be, whether it's half full or completely empty, we can just add more. The state of the cup is not final. That is what supernatural optimism, that's what faith says. Faith looks at the situation and says, I see this situation. I see that my servant is sick, but I trust that God can change this situation. God can make a difference. When, when Martha came to Jesus and said, oh, he's died. And I know you could have done something, but I also know you still can if you want to. That was faith. That was supernatural optimism. Supernatural optimism is realizing that whatever the situation is, it is not final. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. When we understand and know that God is in us, that we have the creator of the universe living within us, that allows us to see circumstances that other people would be discouraged by and to recognize those are not final, that is not a final situation. It's not the final say, it's not the final word. David went to uh, the battlefield to 
to bring food to his brothers, but eventually he faced Goliath. And when he saw that situation, everyone else was discouraged. David, on the other hand, had supernatural optimism where he said, I see the situation, I recognize that it's bad, but I also recognize that God isn't done yet. This situation can still change. How? How did David have that confidence? It came from a knowledge of God's character. The Bible tells us on how he had praised and worshiped and, and been in communion with God as a shepherd boy and how God had helped him with a lion and God had helped him with a bear. And David trusted and believed that God could and would change a situation. Remember Daniel, uh, or well, in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In their situation, when the king says, anybody who doesn't bow down will be thrown into the fiery furnace. I love what they said in verse 16 and 17. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. How did they look at such a dire situation and still keep their chins up? They had supernatural optimism, not looking for the silver lining in a final situation, but recognizing that the situation even though it appeared final, wasn't. That God could and would make a difference. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 says, I made known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What does this say? God has a perspective of the end from the beginning. When God looks at a situation, he knows where it's going. When we, as his children, look at that situation and we recognize, you know what? I know God's plans for me. I know the end. Therefore, I don't have to be confused, upset, distracted by the middle. I, <laughs> I was reminded as I was preparing this message of a situation that took place a couple of years ago. I say a couple, but it's been over 10 years. Um, we had planned a concert, uh, a, a concert with a famous uh, Spanish uh, praise and worship singer by the name of Jesus Adrian Romero. And we had sold tickets. We had sold nearly 2,000 tickets um, to this big concert um, in uh, here in Grand Rapids at, uh, at the church. And we were flying uh, this musician and his entire band in from uh, Mexico to come and to put on this concert. And we had promoted it and been on the radio all the way into Chicago, had people coming from all over the place. Uh, the tickets were sold. It was the morning of the concert. His band had flown in the night before and the, the singer was supposed to arrive that day. Um, he was gonna be several hours early 
I got a call at 10.30 that morning. The concert was at 7 o'clock that night. And they said, we have bad news. Uh, it turns out that our lead singer um, had driven across the border to Brownsville, Texas, where he had a flight to leave Brownsville. Uh, he was gonna have a stopover somewhere, I don't remember where it was, and then be in Grand Rapids in the afternoon. Well, he got to Brownsville and they canceled the flight. Now, Brownsville is not like Chicago here. It's not uh, like Dallas. It, it, it is a tiny little airport. And there just aren't very many flights that leave. And they canceled that flight and there was not another flight leaving for, for quite some time. And they said, because this flight has been canceled, there is no other flight that will get him here before the concert starts. It just can't happen. And I remember just saying, all right. And they said, well, what do we do? They said, they, they, they said there is a flight that can get him part of the way. He can take a flight that gets him um, I don't remember what it was. It was maybe, you know, to Denver and then Denver to Chicago. But he would be arriving in Chicago at the same time that our concert was starting. And I said, well, I want you to tell him, take that flight and call us when he lands at his each of his stops and we're going to see what we can do. And I started getting on the phone and I was calling uh, every airline we could think of. We were trying different things online, we were trying to figure out, is there anything that someone missed? Can he catch a commercial flight and still get here on time? No, we couldn't. So then I started calling private uh, jet places. Well, most of those work with, with advance notice. And so I was having a hard time finding someone who could go pick him up right now. Finally got a hold of a, a private jet service who said, yes, we can, we can do that, but our plane is up in the air. It's being tested by the FAA right now. We're not even allowed to to communicate with the pilot, so we just have to wait patiently until his test is over, but as soon as it's over, we'll fly directly to wherever he is and we'll get him. I thought, okay, well, this is good. You know, how much is this gonna cost? I don't remember what it was, like $7,000 or something. It was pretty much the entire um, uh, income from that that concert, but what else were we gonna do? We said, okay, let's, let's do that, but even that wasn't a sure thing. And so I start trying to figure things out. I'm calling different pilots that we knew in the church and, and there was somebody in the church who, who had a small plane. And they said, well, if there's any way I can help, I, I, I will. But it wasn't big enough or fast enough to fly all the way out to the middle of the US. But what ended up happening is that private jet we tried to hire, kept their testing just kept going and going. So this guy lands in, in Denver and he can't. So then we have him fly from there to Chicago. And so he is going to arrive in Chicago like 10 minutes after the concert has started. Meanwhile, I have called uh, different musicians and people that I, I know here in Grand Rapids to, to have them come in so that there would be something happening in this concert before our uh, main guest arrives late. They end up landing, uh, he ends up landing in Chicago on a commercial flight. Our friend from the church picks him up in Chicago, flies him over here, drives him as fast as he can. He ended up almost two hours late for the concert. But we had things in line, we had other musicians. The people who attended that concert, we had so much feedback that it was one of the best concerts they'd ever been to. And we had only one person out of nearly 2,000 who canceled and said, oh, I'd like a refund because, you know, the, the guy I came to hear isn't here yet. And I, I thought about that story and realized, you know, it could have ended differently. We could have 
given up at any point. When they said there is no flights, we could have said, I guess there's no flights, let's cancel. What made it a success was the fact that despite many different blocks, we just kept looking for a way. We didn't accept the, the failure as a finality. And I believe in many ways, this is what the Bible is talking to us about. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says, For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. The righteous man falls. It's not that, that bad things never happen, but they get back up. The righteous does not accept the failure as the final say. Supernatural optimism isn't just looking at the final situation, the, the situation, looking at the cup and saying, well, it is what it is, but I'm choosing to look at it as half full. No. Supernatural optimism looks at that and says, this doesn't have to be the end. I know the creator of the universe. He is in me. Greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. This doesn't have to stay. Just like Mary, Martha said. She said, I know you could have done something, and I know you still can. This is what God calls us to do. So when we look and our bank account is low, we think, Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need according to your riches, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. When your health is, is on the verge, when you're struggling with your health, Psalms 103.2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases, who redeems you from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love. Or 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. I think it's summed up well in Hebrews 10, 23, that says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Supernatural optimism looks at the situation and recognizes that no matter how dire, no matter how final a situation appears, God is able and God has promised and he is faithful who promised. Romans 8, 28, and we know all things that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. I want to encourage you Plot twists may come, and we may encounter things we never expected to. We may never have thought when Jesus promised this would not end in death, that there would be any death at all, but that we hold on to the understanding that he is faithful who promised and have that understanding that, you know what? 
Supernatural optimism just says, I know the source. This is not final. This is not final. The world says it's half full or it's half empty because the world assumes that the level of water is never going to change. But we understand that God can change. So we can look at it, and even if it's entirely empty, we can look at it and say, that glass can be full again. Jesus asked that question of the prophet in the Old Testament when he looked at those bones and he says, do you see, can those bones live? The answer was yes, God can do that. So I wanna thank you for joining us tonight. Um, if you know that you're forgiven, you know that you're right with God and that if you died today, you'd spend eternity with him, I am so happy for you. But if you don't know, the Bible says that you can. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10 says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. What does that mean? It means you can be saved from the sin that separates you from God. You can be forgiven for that sin. And that both now and in eternity, you will be in communion with God and you can spend eternity with him. If you would like to, to know that your sins are forgiven, I want to invite you to pray along with me the prayer that was just described in that verse. We're going to say, Dear God, I believe that Jesus died and rose again so that my sin could be forgiven. I thank you for that forgiveness. I accept that gift. And I believe that you rose again and I will make you the Lord of my life. I choose to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.